3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Good morning, us. Good morning. It is Thursday, the 8th of September, somehow... How is that possible? Yeah, I don't know. The years start coming and they don't stop coming. And do they not stop coming? They don't stop coming. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Revisit Shrek, everyone, this weekend. Classic film. My favorite movie. Just dropping a little bit about myself out there. Um, oh, it is a, it's a rainy Thursday and we have an absolutely packed show for you today. It's Are You Okay Day. And uh, if anybody says, are you okay to you, you have... My blessing to just put your palm directly on their face and just shove them out of the way. Don't don't be asking if anyone's okay if you're not going to do anything useful to support them. All is systemic change. Exactly. Uh, I think what's much more useful than asking, are you okay, uh, for example, Anthony Albanese, is to raise the rate of Social Security above the Henderson poverty line to at least $88 a day because... As we've seen uh, this year uh, from recent research, I can't remember the organization, uh, but uh, I believe economic distress uh, and insecurity is now one of the leading risk factors for suicide in Australia. So, you know, we need meaningful structural change rather than just slapping a Band-Aid on it, being like, you know, go to triage, you'll be fine. You won't. Uh And uh, that's my bleak little Are You Okay Day rant. But we do have a big lineup for today. So first up, we're going to hear some audio from the Vigil in Memory of Rodri, which is held in Melbourne on September 4th at 11 a.m. Now, this segment does include some distressing content, and we'll include a content warning before we play it. But Rodrigo Ventosia, a Peruvian trans man, activist, and Harvard student, died in Indonesian state custody in August after traveling to Bali on a honeymoon with his husband, and he was targeted based on his gender and race and was detained after state authorities found traces of cannabis under Indonesia's draconian drug laws. So this vigil was a part of international solidarity, demanding the Peruvian state to conduct an investigation and provide an immediate autopsy. So our thanks to Iris from Queering the Air for providing us with this segment of audio. And yeah, we will include that content warning and also information about how to stay updated and uh, support when we play the segment. And then we will listen to Kelly Whitworth, who reports from Rahu's Rent is Too High campaign launched September the 2nd. So property prices are falling, but rents are still rising, and landlords and agents are taking advantage of the loosening pandemic restrictions and low vacancy rents to send rents skyrocketing. While landlordlets, landlords, landlords is when your dad's a landlord and then he buys you your first investment property. Uh, meanwhile, landlords have hoarded over 300 
empty dwellings in Victoria alone when there are hundreds of thousands of people who immediately need homes to live in. And we cannot afford this, so the housing crisis is what happens when basic human rights are manipulated for profit. Cool. And uh, afterwards, we're going to be hearing from Tim Hogan, who's a principal librarian at State Library Victoria, and he's overseeing the 2023 Fellowships Program, which is offering creatives and scholars a share in $190,000 to support bringing fresh perspectives to Victorian life and history. And um, I'm excited to hear more about that because there haven't really been that many... um, what am I trying to say? Paid opportunities for artists, performers, writers, musicians um, to actually engage in some really sustained long-term work. So keen to hear about it. Yeah, absolutely. And then we will be joined by Nick Rose, who is the founder and executive director of Sustain, the Australian Food Network, and lecturer in sustainable food systems at William Anglis Institute. He joins us today to speak about food justice, sustainability, and the Oak Hill Food Justice Farm and their very first birthday this Saturday, the 10th of September in Preston. How exciting. And then finally, we are, jo- uh, we are joined by Georgie Yovanovitch, who joins us to discuss addressing housing insecurity for members of the LGBTIQA plus community in light of the Victorian Greens launch of its Northcote initiative yesterday, which is a plan to establish a dedicated crisis accommodation facility with health services for trans, gender diverse and non-binary people in Northcote. And Georgie is an intersex femme who proudly shares her story through lived experience and advocacy to campaign for the end of forced medical interventions on intersex people and against the pathologization of transgender, gender diverse and intersex people. So I'm really excited for for Georgie to join us later on in the show. And uh, stick with us, folks. It's a massive one. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains. And the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and the Naro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. These are the news headlines for Thursday the 8th of September. Childcare worker protests across the country are shutting down centres as they demand improved wages, conditions and respects, said the ABC yesterday. Across the country, more than a 1,000 childcare centres have shut down, with thousands of workers protest over pay and conditions, and more than 500 people met at Federation Square in Nam yesterday. United Workers Union's Helen Gibbons state that the shutdown is the largest action of early childhood educators that the country has ever seen. Helen has also stated that they are demanding industrial action to, one, pay educators what they're worth, two, value early education the same way we value schools, and lastly, to put children over profit. It's estimated that 70,000 families will be affected by the closure of childcare centres, and workers are vital, are at their tipping point, need sector and governmental support. They're essential, they're not just babysitters, but key figures in child's important early development, and the pandemic has proved this time and time again. Listeners, please be advised that the following headline refers to an Aboriginal person who has died and contains some distressing content. 
A coronial inquest into the death of Walpuri man Kunjai Walker in 2019 has begun this week in Alice Springs. Walker, whose cousin Samara Fernandez-Brown told the court, was a young man who loved his family and was very loved, died after being shot three times by Northern Territory Police Officer Zachary Rolfe in Yundamu in November 2019 during an attempted arrest. In March this year, after a five-week trial before the Northern Territory Supreme Court, an all-white jury found Constable Rolfe not guilty of murder and of two alternative counts. Fernandez-Brown spoke as the first witness into this week's coronial inquest, drawing attention to the Yundamu community's concerns about the role of systemic racism in Walker's death. Earlier this week, lawyers for Constable Rolfe filed a last-minute objection to the scope of the inquest, which seeks to examine 54 specific questions across seven areas, and these include the circumstances of Walker's death, deployment of the immediate response team, recruitment, training, and supervision within the Northern Territory Police Force, conduct of the murder investigation, and the departure of Yundamu Medical Center staff. The Guardian reported on Sunday that Rolf's lawyers objected to the coroner's examination of Rolf's history of use of force during arrests, as well as the proposal to investigate structural racism within the Northern Territory Police Force. The inquest continues, and listeners can keep up to date with developments by following at Justice4, that's the number four, Walker, and the Dajawa Foundation at at D-H-A-D-J-O-W-A on Twitter, or at at Justice4F-O-R-Walker underscore on Instagram. And finally, in headlines... The High Court has handed down a decision yesterday denying a constitutional challenge against a West Australian law that can see persons convicted of relatively minor crimes face indefinite detention. Human rights lawyers and advocates have described the move as discriminatory and unconstitutional, drawing attention to the disproportionate effects of the law on First Nations people. The decision was made in response to an appeal to the High Court by Noongar man Peter Garlett, 28, who was convicted under the High-Risk Serious Offenders Act 2020. Under the expanded powers of the Act, Garlett was deemed a, quote, serious offender and placed in indefinite detention after having served a -a three-and-a-half-year sentence for a 2017 robbery. Roe Legal, who represented Mr. Garlett, stated that the finding was, quote, inconsistent with Australia's obligations under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights to protect the liberty of citizens from arbitrary detention, end quote. Noongar human rights lawyer Dr. Hannah McGlade referred to the judgment as, quote, an erosion of the fundamental human rights and obviously prone to the risk of racial profiling, end quote, recommending that the matter be taken to the United Nations. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 8th of September, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And I just wanted to, we just wanted to mention that today is Wear Pink for Auntie Tanya Day. And Thursday, the 8th of September today would have been um, Auntie's 60th birthday. So they've asked, please help in our family in honoring her life by joining our third year of Pink for Tanya Day. And they've asked uh, to wear something pink, take a photo, upload it to socials, and tag us using the hashtag PinkForTanyaDay, share mum stories, and definitely donate to the Dajoa Foundation and have uncomfortable conversations and educate those around you about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders' deaths in custody. And it's important that we also celebrate her life, um, but 
you know, also acknowledging that, you know, she was a proud Yoda Yoda Wemba Wemba Barapa Barapa woman and she had died in custody. But it's important that we recognize that and that we take time in honoring her life because she was so much more than just a news headline. Yeah, and a really special person, a really vital member of her community and um, a fighter for justice for her own people, including fighting against Aboriginal deaths in custody. So we send our love and solidarity to Auntie Tanya Day's family today. And don't forget to wear it pink and follow Dadua on socials to find out more. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voice is broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. You may be joining us via the radio or you could also be joining us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And also, I believe the Community Broadcasting Association has an app that you can uh, download as well. So check that out because then you can listen to us on the go as well. Um, So now we are going into a segment of audio from the vigil in memory of Rodri, which was held in Melbourne on September 4th at 11 a.m. Now, content warning, this segment includes distressing content, and you can rejoin us after it finishes at 7.30 a.m. And if you do need support, you can call Lifeline anytime on 131114. That's 131114. Or you can contact QLife between 3 p.m. and midnight every day on 1-800-184-527. That's 1-800-184-527. Rodrigo Ventasia, a Peruvian trans man, activist, and Harvard student, died in Indonesian state custody in August after traveling to Bali on a honeymoon with his husband. He was targeted based on his gender and race and detained after state authorities found traces of cannabis under Indonesia's draconian drug laws. He later died in hospital after being abused and extorted in police custody. This vigil was part of international solidarity, demanding that the Peruvian state conduct an investigation and provide an immediate autopsy. In the last week or so, in response to pressure, the Peruvian state has announced an investigation while at the same time Indonesian authorities deny any wrongdoing. Now just to note for listeners, the audio does include some passing loud tram noises and background city noise, but you should still be able to hear what's coming out of the speakers. So uh, without further ado, let's jump into that segment. I'm going to begin today by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people traditional custodians of the land on which we gather today and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. 
Today, we are gathering here demanding justice for Rodrigo Ventosilla and Sebastián Marañano. Rodrigo and Sebastián were two Peruvian trans activists. They, all their life, they've been fighting. Rodrigo was born when he was six months old. He's been fighting since the beginning of his life. And I'm very honored and very happy to be here to celebrate his life, to celebrate love, respect. And I thank you guys for coming as well here. And I would like first to share a little bit of information about what happened to them uh, in Bali. Rodrigo and Sebastián, a married couple and transmasculine Peruvian citizens, traveled to Bali for their honeymoon in early August. Rodrigo was detained for his gender expression at Denpasar International Airport, and a search of his suitcase found traces of cannabis as well as medication for his mental health. His husband, Sebastián, who arrived on an earlier flight, came to his aid and was taken away by the Indonesian Drug Investigation Agency police with no charges against him. While in police custody, without communication and in total lack of protection, both suffer extortion. Both suffer physical and psychological abuse and were pushed to ingest the pills for which they were arrested and taken in a state of unconsciousness to the intensive care unit of Denpasar Hospital, where Sebastian, who was never charged, was given the antidotes for the intoxication, but Rodrigo was left to agonize and die. Sebastian was, was rescued thanks to the efforts of the families and human rights organizations against the indifference of the Peruvian government and the obstruction of the Peruvian consulate in Indonesia. The consul, knowing the danger they were in, at the hands of the Indonesian police, decide not to act and ignore the pleas of the families and the international community, taking five days to show up at the hospital, one day after Rodrigo's death. In support of the complaint filed by the families demanding the Peruvian state an investigation and sanction for the crime of torture. We will rally in Peruvian embassies and in different countries to show up and demand justice upon the arrival of Rodrigo's body at the Peruvian state to perform an immediate necropsy. We want justice. We want an investigation, and we want to know what happened to Rodrigo. We want that his life is not waste. We want to know what happened.
finally, we as Peruvian queers, we want to raise our voice because despite being far from home, we are always present, always present. Our community is the family we choose, and we decide to stand here to support Rodrigo and Sebastián. Thank you. in Indonesia. First of all, I want to acknowledge the Wurundjeri owners of this country, of the Kulin Nation, on whose land we're here today. Yeah, it's so sad. I, I think, um, sadly, these problems are not particular to Indonesia. Um, of course, there, there's a devastating problem right here with Aboriginal deaths, deaths in custody. The situation in Australia with, with transgender people, the situation in prisons, and the criminalisation of drugs, these are also problems here. These problems are particularly severe in Indonesia. First of all, um, state-sanctioned violence is nothing new in Indonesia. The, this is a nation drenched in blood that has not had a moment's peace for centuries. And then after independence, when the hopes of the nation for a better world um, were drowned in blood in 1965 in the massacre of the Communist Party, between half a million and three million people butchered. And that's the context in which this has happened. If things had happened differently in 1965, maybe we wouldn't be here today. Maybe that it would be a different Indonesia today if that had not happened. Yeah, Indonesia's drug laws are some of the harshest in the world, um, including the death penalty. And most of the people who die under the death penalty, it's because of drug offences. You can go to prison for four years for smoking a joint in Indonesia. And this war on drugs has been getting worse since 2015. It's a full-blown moral panic whipped up by the government and the media. Indonesians as well as tourists are impacted. Yeah, and, and this is such a, such a gross injustice against Rodrigo. Somebody who should have been welcomed as a guest in Indonesia. Someone who wasn't doing anything wrong, just wanting to have a nice time, just, just wanting to have a honeymoon with his husband. And this happens. As well as the situation of, of Rodrigo, there are, in Indonesia's prisons, over 260,000 people are held in Indonesia's prisons. Over half of those people are in there over drug-related offences. And um, prisons, the, the war on drugs, Indonesia's war on drugs has pushed the capacity of Indonesia's prisons, like it's well beyond capacity. Prisons are so, so overcrowded and it creates massive health issues. Like, can you imagine the COVID transmission in a prison designed for 600 people and it's got 2,000 people in it? Yeah, it, it's, there's hygiene issues, health issues. Yeah, it's, it's not a dignified way for a human being to live. Yeah, and as well as that, you know, people don't stop taking drugs just because they're in prison. It's totally possible to acquire drugs in prison in Indonesia. And concurrent with this war on drugs in Indonesia, there's also 
a moral panic going on about LGBTI people. Um, this has also been happening since 2015. And might I add, under the government of Jokowi, who was supposed to have been elected on a progressive leftist platform. Oh, I'm so angry. Shame. Jokowi raised the hopes of the people that there could be a better day in Indonesia. And now this has happened. Oh, I was hoping I wouldn't cry. <laughs> yeah, since 2015, um, there has been a rise in um, yeah, websites being shut down, hate speech in the media against LGBTI people, big anti-LGBT protests whipped up by this media storm, parties raided, queer couples evicted. Yeah, big wave of injustice. Yeah, and, and there's, there's a, there are laws under discussion now. Like, homosexuality is not currently criminalised in, in Indonesia, but it's on the cards. There's, there's forces pushing for it. Yeah, and I, I want to add that um, a lot of these issues tend to get lost in translation in Australia. Like, because Indonesia is a Muslim minority country, majority country, um, some people... Yeah, but because of the Islamophobia in Australia, people sometimes blame Islam for, for this. I, I don't blame Islam. Although a lot of this anti-LGBT rhetoric is often framed in religious terms, it, it's just not a fact that there's no unanimous condemnation of LGBT people in, in Indonesian Islam. There are very strident Muslim leaders who are pro-LGBT. And I hope they can um, weather the current storm and, yeah, put on them. So, I, I want to say, instead of this moral panic against, against drug users, against LGBT people, why not tackle the real problems facing the nation? What about corruption? Which is not just on every level of government, also on every level of society. People bribe their way through school in Indonesia. People that bribe their way to get a driver's license. Not to mention on the highest levels of government. In the police, in the prisons. Corruption is everywhere. And the public is angry about it. But to divert the anger of the public, they want to whip up this thing about drug use. Narcoba. LGBT. Ah. And what about... What about tackling the impoverishment of the nation by transnational corporations based in the West, including in Australia. What about Santos, the mining company, based in Australia that is partly responsible for the, the displacement of, over, of tens of thousands of people in Sidorjo, East Java, um, in 2006, the, the victims of which have still not been compensated. My, the mining company that, that, um, that caused a massive environmental disaster, a, a volcano, a mud volcano that drowned, in, drowned in an entire town. You know, why, why doesn't the government, not just the Indonesian government, but also the Australian government, take on these issues? Instead of diverting people's attention from the real injustices. Yeah, this is a government for capital, not for the people. Um, 
But you know, there's hope here. Um, even though we're, what, 15, 20 people, I, don't, I, I haven't done a head count. Every skerrick of organisation is worthwhile. <laughs> I think Indonesia has fallen off the radar of people in Australia a bit. Like, under the, when Indonesia was under the Suharto dictatorship, there was more organisation in Australia. Um, and then people kind of forgot about it when that was overthrown and East Timor got free. But yeah, we're here today and um, I'm so happy we're here today. At least we're here standing up about an injustice that happened in Indonesia. Yeah, and in memory of Rodrigo. And what, what, what a beautiful smile. What, what, what a lovely face he had. You're just looking at his photo. What a lovely guy he must have been. And that, that, that's all I want to say. I, I hope we can come back again about future issues like this, about trans rights affecting Latin American people, affecting Indonesians, anybody in the world. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard audio from the vigil in memory of Rodri, which was held in Melbourne on September the 4th at 11 AM. And uh, this segment did include some distressing content. And if you need to talk to anybody about this, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. Or you can Call QLife between 3 p.m. and midnight every day on 1-800-184-527. That's 1-800-184-527. And just to recap what we heard, Rodrigo Ventasia, a Peruvian trans man, activist, and Harvard student, died in Indonesian state custody in August after traveling to Bali on honeymoon with his husband, and he was targeted based on his gender and race and detained after state authorities found traces of cannabis under Indonesian's draconian drug laws, and he later died in hospital after being abused and extorted in police custody. Now, there's been an international solidarity movement demanding the Peruvian state conduct an investigation and provide an immediate immediate autopsy. And uh, in the past week or so, in response to some of this pressure, the Peruvian state has announced an investigation, but Indonesian authorities are maintaining that there was no wrongdoing. Now, you can help by spreading the word and donating to cover legal fees at paypal.me forward slash malombre zero. So that's M A L. O-M-B-R-E-0. And you can stay updated and follow along on Instagram at Acción por Justicia. So that's A-C-C-I-O-N-P-O-R-J-U-S-T-I-C-I-A. And at Diversidad E-S-T-M. So that's D-I-V-E-R-S-I-D-A-D-E-S-T-M on Instagram. And, of course, we'll have all of these links in our show notes You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is 7.32 in the morning. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. And now we will hear some Vox Pops from Kelly Whitworth, who reported on the Rahu Rent is Too High campaign launch on September the 2nd. Property prices are falling, but rents are still rising, and landlords and agents are taking advantage of the loosening pandemic restrictions and low vacancy rents, 
rates to set rents skyrocketing. Meanwhile, landlords have hoarded over 300,000 empty dwellings in Victoria alone, when there are hundreds of thousands of people who immediately need homes to live in. It is estimated rents will increase by 10% this year. There is a housing crisis and renters are wearing the cost. Rent increases are on the rise as wages stagnate and landlords transfer the cost of interest hikes onto renters. We cannot afford this. The housing crisis is what happens when basic human rights are manipulated for profit. And Rahu launched the campaign on September the 2nd at Victoria Trades Hall and Melbourne is in the lead up to the November state election. We are talking about that the rent's too damn high. Well, I am a student at a university in Melbourne and I'm paying rent and it's becoming increasingly really difficult to continue living out of home. Um, And I guess I'm here to speak the impacts of, you know, renting costs and the housing market on young people and, you know, what that would mean for the future of education and well-being for young people generally. Hi, I'm Will. I'm a delegate for the Inner Melbourne branch of the Renters and Housing Union. Uh, and I've come down today uh, to help support the, uh, the union with the Renters Too High campaign. Uh, we're keen to sort of um, uh, get people involved and really sort of put the rental crisis and the housing crisis uh, as a uh, political issue that the state government has to listen to. Um, and, yeah. Uh, renters together as a, in a union have a lot more collective bargaining power and collective strength. Um, Rahu is always trying to um, push for renters' rights and trying to make sure that uh, we as a union can support each other um, because a lot of the time uh, renters don't feel like they have power. Um, They have to go through um, some really uh, sometimes predatory systems and a lot of the time the information is difficult to find or difficult to come by or they just get lied to. Um, so having a group there that can tell you what you can do and what your rights are is very important. In one of my previous rentals, uh, we had a massive issue with mould. Um, so the Renters and Housing Union was there to help me through um, what my rights were, figure out, you know, did I need to clean that? Did the, was it the landlord's problem? And, uh, yeah, they helped me sort of um, just not have any stress when it came to um, uh, navigating uh, that um, interaction. We managed to get uh, professional mould cleaners in and get it all cleaned out. Um, But the underlying issues of the property weren't uh, addressed, which is unfortunate, um, but that's something that we're trying to push for. Um, We want there to be stronger minimum standards and stronger, safer homes for renters. Uh, and really pushing to make sure that every home is livable and that everyone can um, be safe in their house. And um, what's been the response when you've, when landlords or real estate agents have become aware you're part of a union? Uh, a lot of the time uh, they change their tone very quickly. Um, when, so sometimes uh, our, our members will CC uh, us into official correspondence with the landlord and uh, then the problems go away. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty quick, um, the, the changes that uh, can occur. Oh, so, uh, yeah, my name's Michelle um, and um, have come because, yeah, my rent is too high and, um, yeah, just fed up with, with renters having so few, so few rights. So, yeah, have just, so my rent went up by $100 a week 
in the last couple of months. Isn't that illegal? Uh, no, apparently it's legal, yes. <laughs> yes, because I know landlords have so many rights these days. Um, and I've also just found out that my, my building um, has flammable cladding um, all over it and only the owners of the of the building have been notified but the tenants, the renters haven't. So, How did you find out about it? Oh, the, um, the construction workers next door told me. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's pretty difficult. It's pretty difficult. Um, yeah, I'm on the disability support pension too, so um, it's it's very very difficult. Like majority of my um, of the money that comes in goes to rent. Yeah. yeah so if you don't want to if you don't want to live with lots of other people, which I don't, because you know I'm older. Especially like when you get sick and you're older, you know, when you're a little bit older, um, yeah, you shouldn't have to. I shouldn't have to live in a share house of <laughs> after you know working for for so long. So my name's Lisa, and um, so housing is a human right, and we've been discussing issues around the difference between how commercial enterprises operate and all the tax breaks they get compared to what is considered housing, which is at the moment is treated not as a commercial enterprise. So uh, lots of us live in rental properties that are never actually anybody's home. So they're not the renter's home, they're not treated as homes, they're treated as investments. And the profit motive versus a person's right to actually have a home in this country is so out of whack at the moment. We need wealth distribution and we don't have that from either of our major parties. Uh, the Greens have really good policies and so we're hoping that obviously in the future there'll be some action that will actually mean that not all of us want to own a home, not all of us know that we will be able to have a home, but we should all be able to have housing. So that yeah, that's why that's why I'm here, definitely. It's even referred to as wealth generating machines or rather than as a place to dwell. So the idea of home as a place where it's a space and a place you make your own. Uh, and it's not the... So Australia is not um, unique in the way that we treat property. However, there are lots of other models that we could base housing on. Social and public policy here is broken. Social and public housing is broken. We've had so little investment since the 70s. So housing options for people... Of all, uh, of all different varieties, we just don't have that. And we don't have housing that suits our population. So we've got the housing stock that we do have, that is social and public housing, is older. It's, obvi- it's often was built for nuclear family model. Uh, it was often left over from the Olympics, uh, particularly in Melbourne. So uh, lots of people now live, as we know, alone. We don't have that housing, we don't have those housing options and uh, people to communally live so there are lots of laws that prevent um, social models that have taken off particularly obviously the Scandi countries that have got it going on uh, we, we haven't moved we haven't moved fast enough and now um, we've got massive homelessness and it's homelessness of all varieties it's people couch surfing, it's people living in unsafe housing because they're frightened of saying to their landlord or overlord, please come and fix my toilet. Um, it's, it's really tragic and it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah. We've got other options. Yes. So Rahu, you know, Yahoo for Rahu. <laughs>
I guess I'm just sick of being like harassed by our property manager. Um, I'm sick of her having all the power, and demanding entry to our house at whatever time, and being very condescending towards us, and saying that we threatened her with violence and we've never done anything like that. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a dramatic situation at our at the moment. So, well, they've been saying they want to fix the fence. So they've been saying, like, we'll be coming in three hours, and then they don't come. And we'll say, hey, well, you have to give us 24 hours. And then they say, or they'll come the next week, and they'll say, well, we gave you 24 hours because we told you we were going to come last week when we didn't. Yeah. And my month, my, uh, Is this legal behaviour? No. <laughs> we keep telling them it's not. So and then they say, don't get smart with us. Can you report this behaviour to anybody? I don't really know, which is... You know why I'm trying to get involved. <laughs> That's why, partly why you've joined the union. Yeah, absolutely. When did you join the union? Last week. <laughs> Good on you. Yeah. Have you been able to find out any useful information so far? Not yet, but I'm um, working on it. It'll happen. Yeah. Scott, Scott, can I get you to tell us why you? come down today, why it's important to you? Um, I think given the current status of housing in Australia at the moment, um, it's important to start rallying around a cause like this. We haven't had any big movements in a lot of spaces other than maybe environmental for a long time. And if we look to England as a guide, I think we're about six months behind where they're at. So, so rents are sky high, utilities are sky high, um, you know, price of goods that we see a bit of here is sky high. Um, and I just think the knock-on effect um, that that will create for people is... We've got to ask ourselves the question, is that what we are? That's, is that what we're going to become or is that what we're prepared to put up with? And I think it's important that movements like this say, no, that's not good enough. Um, We're rich enough to, as a country, to make sure everyone has the basic human right of a house, a place to live, a safe place to live, and it should be of good standard. So, um, yeah, that's that's why I'm here. I've I've never owned a house, so I've always rented, and I've had plenty of dodgy landlords. Um, so, yeah, I guess I'm here in solidarity with, with those that are. Um, I can understand what people are, are going through at the moment. So, you know, you've got to stand by each other in times like this. So that's really why I'm here. And you had just heard from Kelly Whitworth, who reported on the Rahu Rent is Too High campaign launch September 2nd, as property prices are falling and rents are rising, and landlords and agents are taking advantage of these restrictions. And now we are joined by Tim Hogan, who is a principal librarian at the State Library of Victoria and is overseeing the 2023 Fellowship Program. 
The program is offering creatives and scholars a chance in $190,000 to support bringing fresh perspectives to the Victorian life and history. There are 15 places available for artists, performers and academics and applications are open now. And now we are joined by Tim. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Hello, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Could we maybe start with uh, your role at the State Library and what the fellowship program actually is? Yes, sure. Um, I'm a senior librarian there working with Victorian and Australian collections in particular. Um, and I'm one of a few people, so I'm one of the people overseeing things. Um, there's actually a, a, a few people above me who sort of coordinate and do the admin and everything. But I've been involved with the program for many years um, in various ways, helping deliver it. And, um, oh, well, one of the things I, that myself and others do is as the applications come in, we, we look at them and... Uh, assess them for whether they will go to the next stage or not. So I've, I've sort of looked at a lot of applications over the years and, and then afterwards when fellows uh, are announced and awarded, uh, staff such as myself then, you know, are sort of a liaison, sort of play a liaison support role to, to help them sort of settle in the library and orientate themselves and, and make best use of the resources there um, to get the most out of their, their fellowships. Yeah, I mean, the State Library is such a beautiful place to be able to work yeah. in. Um, it yeah, seems yeah. like a beautiful opportunity. And it sounds like even from the media release that was um, released, it's there's mm-hmm. lots of different success stories. Could you speak to how the fellowship program has really helped previous applicants and how this supports the State Library's work as well? Yes, yes. Well, we've had... The, the fellowships have been going for nearly 20 years, and we had a, a pause during the pandemic for one year. But uh, look, it's as I think you mentioned before, it's, it's, it's very diverse. I mean, we've had a really wide range of creative people and um, who have been successful, and some of them have ended up doing films, books, written plays, uh, art. Uh, of various forms, uh, installations, artworks. Uh, it, it's, it gives an opportunity for uh, either a creative or intellectual uh, endeavour for someone to spend uh, up to, well, the, the, most of the fellowships, they're awarded $15,000, and that can be, um, and then they, they have that time away from their, their normal work or practice or opportunity to work full-time on something. Uh, they can spend that time over 12 months. You know, some people do it one day a week or spread it out. Others do it intensively. Just gives people time and space and, and I suppose, incentive uh, to engage. The, the, the most exciting thing for me as a person who works with library collections closely is it's, it's a chance for people to engage with all the incredible diverse range of collection material at the library and then use that as inspiration to sort of um, either to produce something a sort of a creative work uh, or to do some sort of intellectual work where you know people have written biographies they've written plays wow. they've, um, they've written histories they've produced large-scale artworks films yeah it's very very diverse which they're intended to be there's there's 
15 fellowships in, in all, and among those there are a number of different fellowships. Some are general fellowships, that we just call creative fellowships, and, and people can really be very broad in what they do um, in those, and there's a number of those. Uh, and then some of the fellowships, such as the George's Moore Fellowship and the um, uh, the, the Tate, uh, there's, there's a couple of ones to do with art, um, the, the Tate Adams Memorial uh, Fellowship at Valdesian Studio and the, the Rick and Moore Residency. They're, they're ones that are a bit more focused on an artistic, you know, they're a visual arts um, fellowship. And then there's one, the Berry Family, one I really like is the Berry Family Fellowship, which is a focus on an aspect of um, social history uh, of Melbourne or Victoria. Uh, and then there's the Children's Literature Fellowship, uh, which is, we, we have one of the largest collections of children's literature anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so our, I think our oldest children's literature book goes way you know, back hundreds and hundreds of years old. So that's, that, that's a, an interesting one. So there's, there's a, it really sort of um, encompasses a lot of diversity and a lot of talented people. Yeah, it sounds like it's, it's so incredibly broad. And I had no idea about the children's uh, collection. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it is. I think the earliest book is 1600s or so, but it, it, it's a massive collection. It's been used by many scholars. And I should also mention that there's an indigenous, there are two Indigenous research fellowships as well, um, uh, available to people who identify as uh, Indigenous uh, people in Victoria. Uh, and there's, so there's two scholarships, uh, scholarships, <laughs> taking back to my uni days, fellowships uh, geared towards that as well. Yeah, it sounds like highlighting um, important culturally diverse work appears to be like a key theme. I'm also wondering, yeah. um, you know, because a lot of art can can sometimes take a, a lot out of you, um, especially mm. when you're engaging with, you know, archival footage or oral histories or yeah. library corrections. Um, how, I guess, are applicants from historically excluded backgrounds supported in their work, you know, notably around, like, cultural sa- yeah. safety too? Yeah. Well, I, I think overall as an institution, State Library is a, a welcoming supportive place for any sort of endeavour just, just as a broad principle so that that's sort of the ethos of the place but we're, um, and, and, but through the fellowships program in particular we're, we're particularly focused on uh, supporting different voices different perspectives giving opportunity uh, and we, we have a, a good in so, so well even for people who are just applying and 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 don't are not successful. You know, we there are information nights and and staff here who people can talk to and feel they can get the best sort of information available to to put in an application. Then, if they're lucky enough to be awarded one, mm-hmm. um, then we have induction programs. We, we spend a lot of time. I mean, the, the library. You know, look as you said before, it's a, a big, beautiful space. It's also a little bit. It can be a little bit intimidating to some people. Yeah. Just the the size of it and the immensity of it. So we're well aware of that, and we we each fellow is uh, assigned a liaison librarian who's just sort of there to give support and guidance and help connect them up to other staff there who can help them. There's, there's a range of staff there 
who not just librarians, but there are staff mm-hmm. who work in the programming side of things, exhibitions. A, a lot of fellows want to do a, an exhibition. That's a common aim that they want to do. So we've, the library puts on exhibitions. So we have skilled curatorial and exhibition staff. We have training and induction in, in, in how to sort of just orientate yourself to the library, how to use the library's collections. And, and then also I think we really work hard to establish a bit of a, a hub or a network of a supportive you know, fellows to get to know each other and support each other where there are sort of common areas of interest or overlap as well. Um, but I, I think it's, yeah, they're, they're, we certainly want it to be a welcoming, comfortable, non-intimidating, stimulatory sort of environment. And I think if you listen to what most fellows have said over the years, and, and you can on the website you can you can see past projects uh, examples, and, and it's not hard to find examples of what the projects have been and what mm-hmm. what it's meant to individual fellows. It's how it's enabled them, and mostly, mostly, you know, we, we've done some surveys uh, in the past, and look, mostly the fellows have had a wonderful time. Yeah, absolutely. I think knowing that there is a university, um, university, I've done the same thing you did before. (laughs) Uh, The state library uh, liaison is really important, and having like a community of like-minded fellows, I think that definitely, Mm. you know, peer support is definitely a a protective factor, and sometimes maybe possibly an isolating um, experience. But you know, having, I, I know, yeah, having. Peer support is really important. Uh, so lastly, Tim, um, if people yeah. wanted to imply, uh, how yeah. do they do this and would you give them any advice? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, well, it's an online application process, so it's it's not a paper-based one. So you do need to uh, uh, go to the library's website and right on the front page, there's State Library Victoria Fellowships. There's a, there's a dedicated page there. So there's a... Uh, online form to fill in. Uh, we ask you a series of questions, um, but and we ask you know for an outline of what your project would be um, and and what your outcome is. Um, and it's not like a job interview in the sense that we're we're, we're we're interested in the project. We're interested in a way it engages with the collection. We're not looking at. CV, have you done 50 other things before? You know, we're, yep. we really want it to be a diverse program, uh, open to, you know, just based on originality and, and, and idea, basically. Um, so you could be a first time applicant in a process like this. You could be someone who's, you know, done a number of things, uh, an award winning person, etc., and everything in between. Um, and look, in terms of applying, uh, look, one of the key things uh, that's all uh, past. You can have a look at the previous things that have won. But that's a good way to start. Just see what 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 the t- some of the types of projects that have won, and they're very diverse. You might have a film idea, you might have a, a writing idea, you might have an art idea, you might have a, a, a visual arts idea. So you can look at the sorts of things that have won in the past. That will give some inspiration. The, but we are really looking for people who have looked at the library collections to some extent, you need to do a little bit, not a lot, a little bit of initial research and just understand some of the material that is at the library and then to, you know, say, look, this is some of the material I want to uh, potentially use to either inspire or investigate. The projects can be quite 
some of them are very intellectual. You know, it's, it's a biography of someone or, or a history of an area or a person or an event. Mm-hmm. Others, it's purely a, an artistic response to material. But we want to know what uh, what the material is, and uh, and but not in detail because that's part of what the fellowship is for. You you will come to the library and you will learn, you will discover material. But you you don't want to be just saying, oh, I'm sure there's a lot of wonderful books in the library that will give me lots of good ideas. <laughs> You, you, need, you need to put a little bit more down on paper or on the form that, that says, well, look, I've, I, I, I'm aware that you've got uh, material uh, in this subject area or this format. I mean, remember the library is not just two million. You know, we have over two million books, but we have uh, artworks. We, we have sculptural works. We, we have original documents. We have hundreds of thousands of photographs. Uh, we have posters. Um, we have films and music. Uh, um you know, as well as just all of the actual research collection of the vast collection of books. There's rare books, there's children's books, there's indigenous material. You know, so so we just need to get a bit of a hint of what what you um your what your focus might be, and uh, uh you know a fairly coherent statement of what you're wanting to do. I I want to you know I'm planning to do an. Sometimes it's multiple. Some people say, look, this what I'm what I'm working on might be a turn out to be an installation or it might be a, a, a mural or, you know, but it, it, it's going to be along these lines. So we want a, re- a reasonably clear statement of what your outcome, outcome yep. intended outcome would be. The other thing, if I've got just a second, is in terms of just helping people, you know, we, we really encourage people to talk about their projects while they're here to either blog about it or talk about it, you know, and, and there are some opportunities where the library can work with you to sort of set some of those opportunities up. So that, that's a way of bringing people out of isolation a bit if they do yeah, sort of fall into that and, and support them to sort of engage with the, the community about their about their project. Amazing. Thank you so much for illuminating to that, Tim, and I hope you have that, a wonderful day. Thanks for joining us here today. That's all right. They close on the 16th. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so people need to get them in in the, in the next week or so. Yeah. Okay. All no right. Worries. Thank great you. To, great to talk to you. you Thanks too. a lot. Bye. Bye. So you've just heard from Tim Hogan, who's a principal librarian at the State Library of Victoria and is overseeing the 2023 Fellowship Program. And the program's offering a share of 190000 to support bringing fresh perspectives and spend a year delving into the state collection. And remember, applications for the program close Friday the 16th of September, and you can see it at the State Library's website, and we'll also link it in our show notes. Hi, my name's John A. Tate, and I've collected hundreds of songs about footy and sport. So we've put together a program called The Sporting Record. Hang on, it's not all about your records, John A. Em and I are also here to cast a critical 3CR eye over all things sport. Join John, James and me every Thursday at 4pm for The Sporting Record, right here on 855 3CR. Kicking off on Thursday, August 25th at 4 o'clock.
3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. And now we are joined by Nick Rose, who is the founder and executive director of Sustain, the Australia Food Network, and lecturer in sustainable food systems at William Anglis Institute. He joins us today to speak about food justice, sustainability, and the Oak Hill Food Justice Farm, and their very first birthday this Saturday from 12pm and Preston. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Nick. Hi, Liz. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to maybe start off with what the Oak Hill Food Justice Farm is. And I know that community members turned an abandoned vicarage with broken windows and no plumbing into a blossoming community centre and urban farm. What role do you think the Oak Hill Farm has played in the community and how have you seen it shift and change over its year? Uh, Yeah, it's been amazing to see the transformation of this space from an abandoned, unloved, weedy, semi-vandalised house and garden, suburban house and garden that happens to be attached to the church there in Harlow Street, Preston, into a community hub. Uh, We've had over a 1,000 people come through this site, um, really mostly in the course of 2022. Uh, In 2021, um, obviously, we're still in lockdowns, and so it was uh, more challenging to activate the space. But but this year, we've really hit our straps. Uh, We've got... Um, I think uh, between 20 and 30 raised garden beds, um, all that produce is being, fresh healthy produce is being donated to Diverse, Darabin Information Volunteer Resource Service that run a fresh food weekly hamper, um, supporting over 100 families uh, that have need to access uh, food relief. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've developed a program with Preston Primary School where all 700 of their students are coming through the space uh, in a hands-on learning journey, the Preston Primary Passata Program, we call it, uh, learning about uh, microbial activity in soils, about composting, about uh, green manure crops, uh, about seed germination and caring for plants, companion planting, all those kinds of things. Um, and we've also established a paid youth internship program for young people in Darabin who are experiencing barriers to study uh, and employment, um, and we're just about to initiate the second round of that. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been a really wonderful experience, and I think a real um, you know real benefit for the Oak Hill community and, and for Darabin more broadly to show what can be done with these kinds of vacant lots. Yeah, absolutely. And knowing that the farm also has partnerships with young people and primary schools, and you know people who need access to food as well, and running workshops. It feels like it's really integrated um, into the community. Could you speak to maybe what, why you wanted to run like these partnerships with young people and also the workshops, and what benefits have you really seen so far? Yeah, well, I might, I might just, um, just mention just a, a bit of personal motivation, and this kind of ties into the work of Sustain and mm-hmm. our really strong focus on urban agriculture and you know, growing food in cities and the power
power of that and the many benefits of that. So, um, you know, I've been working in this space for, for quite a long time, um, working in local food networks, community gardens up in New South Wales many years ago. And, um, but particularly uh, going over to the United States and Toronto and Canada and then five provinces in Argentina in 2014 as a Churchill Fellow to investigate innovative models of urban agriculture addressing critical food security needs for disadvantaged um, urban populations, as well as creating livelihood opportunities, particularly for young people. And I met over 150 people in the course of six weeks, visited 90 different organisations and saw how cities like Detroit in Michigan, which had uh, you know, gone through effectively a, a collapse of you know, the, the economy, um, huge uh, rates of unemployment and poverty and disadvantage, and were really rebuilding themselves through urban agriculture and, and felt really inspired by that and wanted to you know, come back to Australia and really try and get lots of those things happening. Um, so I guess that sort of background and experience has really informed our thinking with Oak Hill. Um, you know, it's not a traditional community garden. It's not for just a small number of residents who've got their own plots growing food for themselves. It's always been very much um, about generating community benefits and uh, and with, you know, the challenges that we're facing, um, we really feel that a really powerful way in which we can make a difference is through education and engaging with, um, you know, with young people, helping them connect with, you know, with their food, with the source of life um, and with each other and, you know, really feel that they can uh, make a really positive, concrete contribution to, you know, changing their own uh, reality and and making a contribution to the broader changes that we need to be, you know, we need to be embracing as a, as a country, um, as, a, as a, you know, global population ultimately. Yeah, it sounds like it's a really important um, mission statement and that it's not just a community centre, like you said, that little people, little um, little patches where you grow food for yourself, it is for the community. Uh, I'm also curious to know when, because I know that you teach as well, um, when you are teaching students about food justice in terms of linkages with, you know, historically excluded communities, uh, what what kind of things do you say and how does this differ from sustainability? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so, uh, again, just sort of drawing on my own sort of like experience and background, um, I, I was had the opportunity to go and live in Central America for a number of years in the early 2000s in Guatemala, um, which had experienced a, a huge um, trauma, um, a, a big civil conflict and ultimately genocide against some of the indigenous peoples as recently as the early 1980s. And a lot of that had to do with conflicts over land and you know, continuing processes of colonisation and, and dispossession and, and yep. racism and violence. So, um, uh, you know, I've sort of like, you know, that integrated that into my sort of career, my study. Um, I research food sovereignty, the global small farmer and indigenous movement to uh, democratise food systems, to, you know, to reclaim power and control over food systems from large uh, corporations, um, which uh, they say are, are really at the, you know, the heart of so many of the inequities and, and issues that we're facing. Um, and the same thing with food justice, which is really um, has its traditions and, and origins in the United States and historical dispossession of and slavery of African-American populations and more recently Latinx uh, populations and, and their <clears throat> uh, processes of 
um, you know, reclaiming land and, and dignity uh, through uh, through through food um, and, and through taking more control over the um, the food that they you know can can access and grow. So um, it does definitely relate to sustainability in that um, you know the argument would be that we won't have true sustainability. We won't really address climate change. We won't turn around the biodiversity crisis until we have, you know, until we have justice, until we have more equality uh, in society. Um, so there's absolutely a strong connection there. But I think sustainability discourse and practice um, in generally doesn't have that political critical dimension to it, and doesn't really talk about issues of power and control and and structures and you know these these kind of concentrations. So I guess that would be the way I would distinguish the two. Yeah, I think knowing that food justice is not just about um, sustainability, it is about critiquing the systems that all intersect with, uh, yeah, with food and agricultural systems, like, you know, racism and, uh, like, food deserts. It's important, yeah, definitely important to be critical of them, and it's uh, vital that that's carried through in the work as well. And I think lastly, Nick, for the farm. Could you tell us a little bit about what your plans are for the upcoming years and tell us about this beautiful event that's happening on Saturday? Sure. Well, maybe I'll, um, I'll talk about yeah, the first birthday party on Saturday first. Um, you know, it's really a celebration of um, everybody who's been involved. And, and as I say, there's been a lot of people involved, a lot of community members have um, you know, been a part of Working Bees. We've had you know, partnerships um, uh, with local schools and with Diverse and, and Bridge Darabin and the City of Darabin and others. So it's really a, um acknowledgement and, and celebration of, of all of that and everybody who's been involved. Um, so there'll be tours of the site with our wonderful urban farmer, Gemma, um, uh, with uh, uh, Shani, another Preston local who's been facilitating the primary school program. Um, they'll be there. Uh, Claire, um, another urban farmer who's working on our other site in Alfington at the Melbourne Food Hub, um, should be coming to talk about the growing tropical plants. We've got another Preston local, Angela Yard, walking encyclopedia about permaculture food forests and edible garden design. So he'll be coming along at one o'clock to talk about um, growing berries. Um, uh, Sharon Flynn from the Commentary, who's one of Australia's leading fermentation um, experts, will be um, selling her water kefir, and she'll also be coming down to chat about fermentation. Um, and then we've got um, worm lover um, Richard Thomas and a couple of colleagues coming over from Werribee to um, talk about you know the role of worms in, in food systems. So it's yeah, it's a real um, uh, celebration and. Uh, uh, you know, everyone to come and see, you know, what you can do in a, a space like this, you know, typical suburban block, house and garden, how it can be transformed into a, um, yeah, a, a real community hub and centre for learning and connection and and, um, and education. Um, so I guess, you know, in terms of like our future plans, we'd love to continue doing that. We'd love to expand it. Um, you know, we'd, we'd like to see um, the Oak Hill Food Justice Farm become like a permanent feature of the landscape in, in East Preston Reservoir and we'd love to see you know many more of these kinds of places right around the city we think every neighbourhood every suburb should have one because they bring so many benefits and uh, such you know a great uh, addition to you know to any neighbourhood in Melbourne so that's our you know our big plan and as part of that we're doing the National Urban Agriculture Month for the second time
time in November. That's the whole of Australia celebration of everybody who's involved in, you know, growing food, be it in a communal space or even in your back garden or front garden, um, to organise a garden tour, workshop, you know, um, make your own party in celebration of the work that you do in your community and help build um, momentum. And, you know, our, our bigger picture here is ultimately a major national fund. Um, we've made a case for a, a $500 million national edible gardening fund mm-hmm. on the back of the pandemic gardening survey that we did in 2020. Um, and so we're calling for, you know, for everybody around the country to get behind this, but particularly federal and state government to really uh, recognise this as a sector and resource it and support it properly because it's going to be really important in the months and years ahead. Amazing. Thank you so much, Nick, um, for speaking about that, and we'll link everything in the show notes as well. Thanks so much, and it's really lovely to talk to you. You too. Thank, Thank you. you. And you've just heard from Nick Rose, who is the founder of Sustain, uh, the Australian Food Network, and he spoke to us about food justice, sustainability, and the Oak Hill Food Justice Farm first birthday this Saturday on 12pm till 3 in Preston. The Seoul Musmi Centre for Performing Arts and Monica Singh Sangwan present a year-long season of solo and group Odyssey dance performances on Saturday, September 17th and 24th at Dance House and October 1st at Fairfield Amphitheatre. All shows will be accompanied by our live Odyssey music ensemble. Odyssey is an Indian classical dance style that is both traditional and contemporary in its intrinsic nature. Join us for what can only be described as a pilgrimage where the dancer and musicians merge together as co-performers. Tickets available via our website, sohamasmi.org. This project has been financially supported by Regional Arts Victoria and Creative Victoria. We also acknowledge Dance House, Multicultural Arts Victoria and 3CR Community Radio as supporters in this endeavour. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're now joined in studio by Georgie Yovanovic to join us uh, to talk about addressing housing insecurity for members of the LGBTIQA plus community in light of the Victorian Greens launch of its Northcote initiative yesterday. And this initiative is a plan to establish a dedicated crisis accommodation facility with health services for trans, gender diverse and non-binary people in Northcote. And Georgie is an intersex femme who proudly shares her story through lived experience and advocacy to campaign for the end of forced medical interventions on intersex people and the pathologization of transgender gender-diverse and intersex people, and she is currently a board member of the Zoe Bell Gender Collective and an advocate and co-founder of the TransFem Resource, a website supporting healthier relationships between trans women and cis, straight, and bi-plus men. Georgie, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Great yeah, absolutely. Here. It's always it's always very exciting to have somebody in the studio for our interviews because so much of the ones that we do early in the morning are via phone. Oh, okay, everyone's still sleeping. Yeah, yeah. Every, <laughs> everyone rolls out of bed and gets yes. on the phone. Um, so maybe we can start off by hearing a little bit about your own journey of personal and community activism and advocacy as a trans woman and intersex person. Okay, great. Well, I'll just... Uh, well, you've introduced me, but... I would, as being um, an intersex person, I would like... A lot of people don't know much about uh, what intersex is or who intersex is and the biology around it. So I just want to give a little briefing on it to create a little bit of understanding. And 
a little personal brief on me. Um, an intersex person may be born with the bi- biological attributes of both sexes. Intersex is a term that refers to a broad range of congenital, physical, hormonal, genetic or chromosomal traits or variations that lie between the ideals of female and male binary. Intersex status is about variations of biology, not gender identity or sexual orientation. Intersex is not a medical condition or a disorder, but bodies that are often born healthy, like I was, until uh, between the ages of 13 and 17, I had uh, invasive surgery and procedures to normalise my body. I was put on hormone replacement therapy to masculinise my appearance, which also threw my biology and hormones out as well. Um, By the age of 17, I was uh, coerced and forced without my consent and had my breasts removed as well. Uh, So these procedures were performed against my will and consent. These interventions put my biology and hormones out of its natural balance, which started to create emotional and psychological mental health issues. So from the age of 13 to 17, it was all very dramatic. No one knew what intersex was. The word was never even mentioned. I didn't find out until I was uh, intersex through medical uh, tests uh, until I was 30. So that's why I co-identify as trans as well. So I thought I was trans until then. So, um, which, again, through created a lot of mental illness, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, um, street uh, sex work, hitting the streets, um, which of course, and then homelessness was another part of it. So, a lot of us of my generation, I'm 60 now, so um, <laughs> I've seen quite a bit in my time, um, and the hardships that the trans and intersex community face through discrimination, discrimination uh, misogyny, uh, abusive relationships, predominantly with men, from my personal experience, as well as others that I know. Um, so, yeah, we need this, this systemic issues around homelessness, food shortage, rent, affordable housing. It's just, I could go on, it's across the board, it's not just one or two little issues. Mm. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. And I appreciate you providing some of that background and sharing some of your story with us because I think it provides an insight into how multi-layered um, issues of housing crisis can be for members of our community, uh, for people, uh, in my case, who are trans or gender diverse, um, you know, where there are a variety of different marginalizations that compound to really affect the way that um, people are able to access housing. 
And I'm wondering if you can speak to, you already spoke to some of the barriers that community members might face, but maybe you could talk to this in a little more detail and how it compares, uh, like how the level of servicing that's available for members of the LGBTIQA plus community in terms of housing crisis uh, compare to the kind of need that is there. Well, like uh, I was saying, again, through the, the two years of lockdown, I mean, the system's totally inadequate and has been forever since I was a kid. So I grew up in housing commission just up the road in Fitzroy here. Uh, public housing, lots of displacement, lots of uh, kids with uh, that live in uh, domestic violence, sexual abuse, incest. So I grew up with a we were the group of misfits, like in the Housing Commission. So it's, and it's prevalent, like, and obvious, but the system doesn't cater for the trauma or is in denial of the trauma that it actually creates. So I've been on the waiting list for counselling by a queer service um, for eight months now which is, I've never experienced this in my life. And I just, I read a little article the other day, which I'd like to to quote. Um, uh, Society's understanding of mental health issues locate the problem inside the person and ignores the politics of their distress. So we're made to feel... From a child, I was made to feel by family that I wasn't worthy, I was strange, I was inadequate, uh, just because of my appearance and my gender. Uh, And so, and then we're to blame for having mental health issues. And I'm like, and I've spoken to people before and family and go, well, my mental health issues really aren't my own. They actually come from outside of myself, which are people like you that discriminate and abuse and then wonder why we have mental health issues. So, um, and this article is by Sana Ashen. I was reading it the other day and she's a psychiatrist and these are her quotes, so I don't own this, but this is how I feel Mm -hmm. and, and this is... Uh, funny how it just came into my lap yesterday morning. Yeah. Because I was uh, going to the LGBTI launch yesterday for the Greens. I was grappling with what I wanted to actually talk about because I knew the pollies are going to talk about the logistics of the centre and how wonderful. And it, it is. It's amazing. And I welcome it. I'm like so grateful that actually some political parties actually going to be doing something to create this. But um, also we are told that we are living through a mental health crisis. Mental health services cannot cope with the exploratory of demand over the past two years. 1.6 million people are on the waiting list, which is, I'm one of them, while another 8 million need help that can't even get on these lists. So that's a lot of people in distress that are being just thrown to the wayside. And I understand uh, the cutbacks with uh, all services, mainstream, 
and LGBTIQA+, um, which um, I use uh, Drummond Street service. They're mm. fantastic, but staff are just minimal. And like I said, uh, I've been waiting eight months and I've never experienced this in my life. Yeah, it's, it is really shocking to see um, how bad the the under-resourcing of these services um, is compared to the level of demand. And as we see these sort of crises escalating, of course, it's the people that are most vulnerable that get left on the wayside. And, and we can't ignore the intersections between uh, the discrimination that members of the LGBTIQA plus community face, uh, the mental health concerns that that raises and then the impact that that has on housing stability. Um, so I was wondering as well if you wanted to, to speak to the um, the plans that actually have been put forward um, in that launch last night. Yeah, just just briefly. Um, I mean, the, the Greens members, uh, uh, especially Campbell Noam, who's the local dude, wonderful person, and Polly, and all the others involved, Timmy and Sam, and I forget there's so many names last night and things going on. But they're going, uh, they've allocated 200 million to build an actual centre hub, which uh, will be established, uh, which will be built in Northcote, which is well received. And it will establish accommodation facilities uh, with a focus of crisis support, community hub and health centre for transgender diverse non-binary people and intersex and the rest of the community. Um, And strengthening support and advocacy for our own community to be uh, responsible to our uh, specific needs. A drop-in centre hub again connect people to services information resources and peer support and they are also talking about that this center should be run by our own community we know what's best for us and um so yeah the the crisis accommodation is five beds in five beds out uh resource center where anyone can pop in um Somewhere safe mm-hmm. to be as well. Yeah. Um, so again, that's the basic plan. And again, and people can look online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The grains because the political details are all of too, course too much for me. And I'm, <laughs> like, I'm like the humanist of it all. It's like well, you're the one that's here providing the analysis that underpins, uh, you know, the reasons for why this needs to exist. Yeah. Um, so just in the in the last few minutes as we as we wrap up, I was wondering if you wanted to speak to some of the specific concerns coming back to the start of our conversation facing members of the intersex community, including some of those outlined in the Darlington statement, and maybe encourage uh, listeners to to uh, look at that in more detail. Yes, definitely, and that's another thing that I wanted to mention. Thank you. That um, if people would like to click onto the Darlington statement, I was a working member on that over two years with IRA, um, Intersex Human Rights Association. And um, to, I mean, there are laws in place about invasive surgery being performed on intersex 
children, infants, or intersex people in general, but normally the doctors like to target the child at birth. Um, mine wasn't, uh, my intersex status wasn't obvious until I was a teenager, and then I had the medical intervention. Um, so we've changed laws, but it still has, doesn't stop the doctors and the hospitals from actually putting fear, like they did with my experiences, that they didn't inform my parents about my intersex status um, and why my body was the way it was biologically. And from what my mother has told me, that she remembers, that the doctors and the specialists um, just told my parents that uh, I need to be normalised to fit in to a societal norm and the best thing to do is perform these invasive surgeries to masculinise my body to f my appearance and so and for the, the best of the child. So, of course, they put fear into my parents and this is mm -hmm. what they still do. Um, even though laws have changed, human rights laws have changed against the surgeries, the invasive surgeries. Yeah, and I mean, I, I really encourage listeners to check out the Darlington Statement, and we will yes. have a link to that in Fantastic. our show notes. Look, Georgie, thank you so, so much for making the time to join us in studio, in person this morning. Um, I really appreciate it. So do I. Thanks very much. Absolutely. Um, and it looks like we're coming up to the end of our show for today. So in lieu of a rundown, we will just remind people to wear pink today for Tanya Day um, and... Uh, you know, hold her in mind, uh, visit the Dajua Foundation and donate if you can. And uh, we'll catch you all next week. Catch you next week. Bye. Bye. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.